Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased to have with us master historian and author Jerry, Professor Jeremy Black, the most prolific author writing in the Anglophone world today. And today we are discussing his newest book, or one of them, I should say, The Game is Afoot, The Enduring, Work, the, the Enduring World of Sherlock Holmes, published by Roland and Littlefield. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, why did you write this book? I wrote this book. I've always been interested in Sherlock Holmes and indeed in Arthur Conan Doyle as a whole. As you know, because you've kindly discussed them with me and I made some very perceptive comments about them, I've been trying to go through the canon of literature that is most familiar to me. I'm not implying that it's an exhaustive canon, but principally British writers and ask questions about them as an academic historian. So I've you know, published books on Shakespeare and Austin and Dickens and Agatha Christie and Ian Fleming, and I've got ones forthcoming on Smollett and Fielding. Um, and for me, uh, sort of Doyle, and particularly Holmes, is a great fascination because it brings together both one of my um, the great hobbies, which is reading um, detective fiction, um, but also um, the academic engagement. And um, who was Arthur Conan Doyle? Arthur Conan Doyle was a, a, a Scottish um, from a, not exactly a, uh, a um, terribly well-off background. He came from Irish Catholic stock. Um, his father was affected by alcoholism and psychiatric illness. Um, he was calls given a Jesuit education before studying at the University of Edinburgh's medical school from um, 1860, sorry, 1876 to 1881, during which he began to write some stories. He became a ship's doctor in the Arctic and off West Africa, neither of which were uh, easy uh, billets in that period. Um, he then set up an independent medical practice at Portsmouth, British um, dockyard on the south coast of England in 1882. But he found it very difficult to establish himself, um, not because he lacked talent, but because of a lack of patience. Um, and uh, he turns to writing in large part um, for you know, as a profession, as an occupation, in order to uh, provide um, for himself and indeed for his family, and uh, we know him most for the uh, the Holmes stories. But in fact, he writes uh, much more widely. He also writes historical fiction. Um, he writes other detective stories, which are non Sherlock Holmes. Um, and he has, he's got a sort of very broad, uh, he writes science fiction, he's got a very broad set of interests. I mean, he plays in golf for Portsmouth Amateur Football Club. 
uh, plays in uh, first-class cricket matches, taking the wicket of the leading cricketer of the age, W.G. Grace, on one occasion. Um, and, um, you know, his obituary and wisdom, the sort of Bible of cricketers, uh, mentioned that he could hit both hard and, and bold in flight. He was a protagonist of empire. He served as a volunteer during the Boer War. You can think, of course, of Winston Churchill playing a role in that very conflict as a journalist. He was a British participation in both that war and in uh, World War I. Um, he stands for Parliament twice as a Liberal Unionist, uh, something I hope can discuss. Um, uh, doesn't succeed, but he's committed politically, and he campaigns against miscarriages of justice, um, he's a lapsed Catholic. He's president of the Divorce Reform Union. He's very interested in spiritualism. And he eventually dies as a distinguished man of letters um, in 1930. Was the character of Holmes based on anyone in particular? Well, it's generally agreed that it was based on a man called Joseph Bell, who was an Edinburgh medical uh, teacher who had Holmes's sense of precision and uh, and decisive <laughs> decisive delivery of views, uh, and uh, in a way, Bell is uh, is presented. I mean, I think it's fair to say we know more on who Holmes based Doyle on than we know, for example, on whom Fleming based Bond on. Was there any precursors to Holmes as a character by other writers before Conan Doyle? Well, that's very interesting. I mean, there are, of course, um, detective writers prior to that, and, and most famously, of course, the American Edgar Allan Poe, but also um, in Britain, uh, Wilkie Collins. And um, I think it's fair to say that the moonstone of Wilkie Collins is one of the greatest ever detective stories. Um, comes out in 1868, I think it is. Um, and um, but I think it's fair to say that there was no counterpart to the uh, particular forensic skills and abilities and character that is attributed to Holmes. His kind of omnipotence, his kind of almost um, um, sort of metaphysical quality is one that you don't associate with earlier de detectives. What was Holmes' relations to rural England in the stories? Well, that again is a very interesting question. I mean, the, the um, we tend to think about Holmes very much in terms of London, um, and it's certainly true that. Um, that's where he's based. But much of his investigations uh, are a matter of going from London, generally, um, you know, with the rail timetable to the fore, uh, both in the to nearby to suburbia and the home counties, what we would call in England, southeast of England. But also he goes further afield. I mean, obviously, most famously with the Hound of the Baskervilles, which is set in Dartmoor near where I live. Also, for example, he goes up to Yorkshire, um, and um, he is a, a um, national figure from that point of view. And the same thing is true of some of his um, other characters, 
Um, in, for example, the Brazilian cat, which is a non-home story, uh, detective story, which comes out in 1898. Um, his character, Marshall King, goes, you know, into r- rural Suffolk. And what's interesting is that Holmes famously argues that from the countryside being necessarily a matter of rural virtue against urban uh, sin, which of course is the standard counterpoint in uh, many 18th and 19th century novels. You know, you can think, for example, of Fielding or Smollett, etc. Um, he says that the countryside actually can hide um, uh, evil just as much as the town does, and maybe even more so because people are less under a scrutiny. Uh, I mean, it's obviously a perceptive viewpoint, um, but it's also one which enables um, uh, Holmes to find puzzles wherever he goes. Um, in the Copper Beaches, which is one of his famous short stories, um, Watson is looking out of the train at the beauty of the Hampshire farmland, and uh, Holmes argues that, um, you know, right, you look at these scattered houses and you're impressed by their beauty. I look at them and only think that there is the feeling of their isolation and of the impunity with which crime can be committed there. And he then goes on to deliver a real, uh, you know, it's my belief, Watson, founded upon my experience that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside. And think of the deeds of hellish cruelty, the hidden wickedness which go on year in, year out in such places. And that's, I think, quite a, uh, a denunciation of the countryside. Of course, other writers we're also presenting a view of, the, of rural life far from Elysium. I mean, uh, uh, Thomas Hardy, pressure and the hatred and hardships that humans visit on each other. So uh, Conan Doyle isn't alone, but I mean, it's very interesting because most writers focused on sin as an urban phenomenon. And that, of course, is what you get with such cool celebrities as Jack the Ripper, for example. How does uh, Conan Doyle address the position of women in society in the, in the stories? Um... Well, the general notion of equality in that period was one of respect for what was seen as set functions and development. And I think it's fair to say that um, Holmes, uh, to a great extent, conforms to that, as does um, Doyle as a whole. But he does have active women who are... um, you know, who are um, impressive characters. So, for example, uh, Isadora Klein is is one of those. And, of course, um, he, you know, famously um, is very taken by um, uh, female, uh, as it were, master criminals. Um, but um, I think I, I would not say that in Holmes's case, uh, or, in, or in Doyle's case, a man who, after all, supports divorce, divorce reform, I would say in some respects he's in the tradition of Wilkie Collins, who also, and indeed Charles Dickens, had also looked at the cruelties and harshness that women could be subject to 
and had argued the need for social reform and a reform of people's attitudes. Um, and, you know, you've got uh, repeatedly there the, um, the awareness of the position women are in. So in, in The Hound of the Baskervilles, Mrs. Lyons points out to Watson that a woman couldn't go alone in the evening to a bachelor's house, even though the bachelor in question is the highly respectable and far from young Sir Charles Baskerville. So that there is a a sense that um, women are in a difficult position and that often they are the victims of really um, quite nasty men. And most of the criminals are men. Uh, when there are women acting in an inappropriate part, it is generally because they are pressure uh, from these harsh men. Um, and some of the discussion of women um, is of uh, character, and some of them is dis some of the discussion is of sort of pre-Raphaelite quality. So I, I was very struck. I think I repeated it in, in that story, the missing three quarter. Um, he he refers to a woman, young and beautiful, was lying dead upon the bed. Her calm, pale face with dim, wide-open blue eyes looked upwards from amidst a great tangle of golden hair at the foot of the bed, half sitting, half kneeling. His face borrowed was a young man whose frame was racked by his sobs. Well, that's very much uh, a, a pre-Raphaelite account. But if you want a very different account, uh, if you go to the Abbey Grange, um, uh, Sir Eustace Brackenstall is a, uh, a drunkard uh, who beats his wife, uh, Mary, who declares to both Holmes and Watson to be with such a man for an hour is unpleasant. Can you imagine what it means for a sensitive and high-spirited woman to be tied to him for day and night? It is a sacrilege, a crime, a villainy to hold such a marriage as binding. Now, that's an important argument. That's a, directly against the teachings of the established church in that period. Um, I say that these monstrous laws of yours will bring a curse upon the land. Heaven will not let such wickedness endure. I mean, you know, that's a pretty um, tough um, uh, account of the situation from the female perspective. How is the nobility reflected in the stories? Um, uh, well, some nobles, some people of great birth are people who are uh, those praised. Others, quite frankly, are disgraceful. I mean, Lord uh, Mount James in the novel I just referred to, one before, The Missing Three Quarters, is described depiction of the aristocracy. A quill dressed in rusty black with a very broad-bimmed top hat and a loose white necktie, the whole effect being that of a very rustic parson or an undertaker's mute. Yet in sight of his shabby and even absurd appearance, his voice had a sharp crackle and his manner a quick intensity which commanded attention. And he then, you know, he, he wants to find his missing nephew, but he reveals that he's a nasty and uh, an unpleasant um, individual. I mean, hereditary is a frequent issue in the uh, in the novels, and hereditary both works in favour of some aristocratic and against others, and also, you know, with non-aristocratic uh, families. So, for example, in the Beetle Hunter, which is a Sherlock Holmes uh, story. Um, 
Lord, um, you know, here, here we have the following. He comes from a stock which is deep, deeply tainted with insanity. He has more than once had homicidal uh, outbreaks, which are the more painful because his inclination is always to attack the very person to whom he is uh, most attached. So there are issues. Um, there are uh, aristocrats who are so shown to be selfish, uh, vile indeed in some cases, and there are others who are presented as noble figures who understand their role and are willing to use their resources uh, to the greater good. And I think that you know would be an accurate account of the aristocracy in any age. How are Lord Salisbury and A.J. Balfour represented in the, in the stories? Oh, well, that's a uh, an interesting uh, question, because as I mentioned, there is this uh, liberal unionism there, and, uh, and obviously, um, uh, as you correctly, Salisbury, uh, the third Marquis, is the head of the uh, party, but it rules the period from 1880. To 1905 with the support of the Liberal Unionists, with Salisbury Prime Minister for most of that period to 1902, and then Arthur Balfour, his nephew, as his successor. Um, and Doyle refers to this situation in a number of his short stories, for example, in the Naval Treaty, which comes out in 1893. Uh, Percy Phelps informs Watson that through my uncle's influence, I obtained um, office. Uh, his mother's brother is Lord Holdhurst, the great conservative politician, etc., etc. So, um, uh, and who is foreign minister in Salisbury, is both foreign secretary and prime minister. And like Phelps, Balfour had been to Oxford, Cambridge, and like Phelps, he was unmarried. So, I think it's fair to say um, there is a close identification there um, and um, I think it's also fair to say that Doyle is somebody who didn't sympathize at um, um, who we found even in political circles but even less with those who wanted to overthrow the empire I mean so for example in the Priory School um, which was published in 1904, refers to uh, the Marquis of Hartington, who subsequently becomes Duke of Devonshire, and who is, in many senses, part of the political spectrum. He says, um, he refers to him, it's an, he, he, first of all, that this just chap is a, an arrogant and difficult man, but he all, and uh, Holmes reproaches the arrogant, uh, but he all, it's married life, has not been a peaceful one, and the matter has ended in a separate consent, the Duchess taking up her residence in the south of France. Now, what he's sort of referring to is the rackety nature of Devonshire's private life, which, you know, was true. So, so the part of his comments on political figures are to do with where they stand politically, um, so Holmes, for example, is in favour of free trade, which is a great liberal unionist cause. Um, and part of it is to do with their moral uh, assumptions. In the case of uh, the Duke of Devonshire, you're talking about the fact that his longtime mistress was the so-called uh, 
the Duchess of Manchester, and subsequently, after her husband passed away, she became a Devonshire's wife, earning the title the Double Duchess. You're absolutely right. Yes, a character straight out of, uh, I mean, you know, um, yes, she was a character who I think was straight out out of fiction. I mean, Devonshire himself, you know, before her, there was he had a long-term mistress who was the courtesan, Catherine, Catherine Walters. I mean, he was scarcely, um, as it were, a morally exemplary character. How is the empire reflected in the stories? Oh, uh, empire is very, uh, very much a positive feature in um, in what Holmes writes about, and of course Watson famously has um, served his country in the army as a army doctor in um, in Afghanistan. Um, there is a whole host of references to empire in the Sign of Thor, for example, which is a um, a novel, full-length novel. Jonathan Small describes the mutiny or the Indian Rebe- Rebellion, whatever you want to call it, of 1855, 1859. And he's an estate overseer. Uh, and, you know, this is what he writes. Uh, One month, India lay as still and peace is a Surrey in over 200,000 black devils let loose and the country was a perfect hell. The whole sky was alight with the burnt door. Hundreds of black fiends, a fight of the millions against the hundreds, nothing but torture and murder and outrage, fanatics and and so on and so so forth. So I think it's fair to say that there are many instances of um, hostility. I mean, and the note is praised as an empire that's primarily the white empire, the dominions, um, Australia, Canada, exemplary characters, such as in the case of Canada, the Baskerville who is going to revive um, the, the the family. Um, but I, I mean, look, listen to this one, for example, if we go on in the sign of Thor, um, we can um, I, you know, I'm not giving any, well, I am, most listeners will know their hopes. Um, the islander Tonga, who plays a role, a villainous role, um, the derogatory, and unnecessarily so. So in the chase on river, distorted, never have I seen features so clear in the or fury. the kind of approach you would see taken in a in a modern novel um and again i mean if you look at a non-homes book the um sorry story the tragedy of the kurosko which has uh, appeared in a serial in the strand magazine in 1897 and then there's a book in 1898 um it's really as there's quite a few of home i'm sorry of will's works in sudan uh, they're seen as barbaric to the civilization of Egypt, presented as being protected by Britain as part of the British Empire. And uh, Colonel Cochrane argues, um, you know, behind national interests and diplomacy and all that there lies, a great guiding force, a providence, in fact, which is forever getting the best out of each nation and using it for the good of the whole. 
when a nation ceases to respect, she went into hospital countries like Spain or Greece. The, the virtue uh, has a man or a nation is not placed upon the earth to do merely what is pleasant and what is profitable. That is how we rule India. We came there by a kind of natural law, like air rushing into a vacuum. In case that isn't clear enough, um, this has added an enormous dollop of Anglo-Americanism. I mean, Doyle is very much Anglo-American. And uh, you know, it goes to that book. Uh, the English speakers are all in the same boat. We and you have among our best men a higher conception of moral sense than is to be found in any other people. How is America reflected in the stories? Oh, there's a very clear sense of Anglo-American manifest destiny. Indeed, in the, in the short story, The Tragedy of the Oscar, um, the following is said. The English speakers are all in the same boat. We and you, best men, acts and public duty, than is to be found in any other. These are the two needed for directing a weak pressure force you to administer the whole of America from Mexico to the Horn. In other words, that's the bottom of South. This is a very bold account, and one needs to be aware of this in, un in order to understand the broader politics of, and therefore of Sherlock Holmes. What, in your opinion, is the best cinematic adaptation of the stories? Television, the Jeremy Brett, Sherlock Holmes were really good. I think that he captured the character, and I think... He was more close to Sherlock Holmes than the early Basil Rathbone or the present, which is Dick Cumberbatch. Um, the Jeremy Brett series went for you know, these kind of catch-up and other such things. I'm afraid I don't think the present Benedict Cumberbatch are very good. I mean, they, you know, they, um, they're like the Guy Ritchie films uh, of recent years. They use Sherlock Holmes, but they don't understand the character. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? The one thing I'd like people to take away from my book is exactly the same as from my The Importance of Being Poirot, that you have to understand the author, that the a political and social viewpoint, a set of cultural values, and a moral purpose. And they are not simply providing a character on which modern can be. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much Professor Black, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.